Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for being with us here today. I just finished talking with Kirk Denton about his recent book, Exhibiting the Past, Historical Memory and the Politics of Museums in Post-Socialist China. This came out with the University of Hawaii Press in 2014. Now, this is a book that's a really fascinating exploration of not just museums, but historical museums specifically in modern China. And it takes readers through the history of historical museums and exhibitionary spaces, but also contemporary and modern manifestations of lots of different ways of engaging and rendering history in China um, in an exhibitionary way. And so these include military museums of various sorts, literary museums, museums of the future, local museums, museums and exhibitionary spaces that honor particular models or martyrs or great leaders, and much, much more. So you'll hear us talking about some examples um, that Kirk describes and some of the major points or major um, kind of conceptual issues that these examples help raise in the hour to come. But what I wanted to start with um, is just reading to, uh, to read you the description of one of my very favorites. Um, this is from the section chapter eight that you'll hear us talking about toward the end of the interview. And this is a chapter on modern literature museums. Now you'll hear us talk about something called Madman Memorial Hall that features in something called Lou Village, which is a space devoted to memorializing and celebrating the writer Lu Xun in Shaoxing. 
Okay, this is one of my favorite, or at least one of what I think is um, the most, uh, among the most fascinating of the spaces that Kirk writes about. So I wanted to bring you into this to give you a little bit of a flavor of the book and a flavor of some of these spaces before unleashing you into the conversation to come. So we're on page 190 of the book, um, and I'm just going to read you briefly this page, and you'll understand why, I think, when I'm done. Okay, so here we go. By far the most interesting part of Lou Village, to my mind, this is to Kirk's mind at least, is the Madman Memorial Hall, a kind of house of horrors that attempts, were told in the prefatory remarks, to make the spectator feel what it would have been like to live in a cannibalistic society. The preface explains, here's a quote, how did the feudal ethics eat people? Here we use modern technological methods as well as a variety of artistic expressive methods to display in a real and lively manner the eaters and the eaten. The, the exhibit will cause you to feel for yourself through the sensations of sight, sound, and touch, the true meaning of Diary of a Madman, and in personally partaking in the ten grotesque and bizarre and soul-stirring scenes, you will get an imagistic and entertaining education. Okay, now we're out of the quote and back on the page. Among the displays in the Memorial Hall are the Worm Cave, where you enter the maw of a great beast until you reach its intestines to experience for yourself the bloody situation of a man being swallowed and eaten by the old feudal ethics and its dehumanization. And the tilted room, which is meant to lead the spectator to experience Lu Xun's upturned, abnormal, and distorted psychological world. You can also talk to a model of the madman, who's programmed to respond to set questions. There are grotesque displays of fierce figures eating human hearts, a special effects garden that recreates a storm and a display in which the beams of a room are collapsing on the figure of a madman. The final display shows children playing as a voice recites the famous final line of Diary of a Madman. Save the children. Okay, so that's just one moment of many, many, many moments in this book um, that I think helps to convey that it's much, much more interesting and fascinating here to tell the story of historical museums than you might imagine just from that phrase and from that concept, historical museums. Here, um, as Kirk is showing us, historical museums can include these fascinating and really bizarre exhibitionary spaces that take us into the maw of a beast and do all these really interesting things. And so, okay, I had to read that for you because I think it's fascinating and hopefully you'll see from that um, some of the possibilities that come out of the example, the examples and the exemplars that we just barely um, scratched the surface of in the book. So with that, I'll leave you to the interview. Thanks as ever for listening and for the support of the channel that you offer us by doing so, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Kirk Denton about his new book, Exhibiting the Past. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Kirk, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, thank you for inviting me. Of course. So let's start with the traditional question um, for the channel. How did you come to the field? What brought you to academic work in the literature and the history of modern China? Well, way back when, I was a, a, a major in French at Colby College in Maine. 
And I graduated with a degree in French and find myself, found myself uh, unemployed for a while. <laughs> I ended up working in a warehouse, moving furniture and delivering furniture. <laughs> and I thought, boy, do I really want to do this the rest of my life? <laughs> and this was right around the time when uh, the U.S. was opening up diplomatic relations with China. And I'd always enjoyed studying languages, so I thought, well... Should I try Chinese? So I was living in Illinois at the time and uh, applied to the University of Illinois to to study uh, Chinese there. Spent a, an, a year and a bit of intensive Chinese and then was sent to uh, became a study abroad student at Fudan University in Shanghai. Was among the very first group of American students to study in China after the end of the Cultural Revolution. And it was really that experience in China that, that got me hooked. And uh, I had a, a wonderful year in, in China and became just interested in all things Chinese and in particular modern Chinese literature. And uh, you know, I didn't realize when I first started studying Chinese that I'd go on and do a PhD, but, uh, but I did. I ended up then going to the University of Toronto, where it's my hometown, and uh, completed my degree, my MA and PhD, PhD degree at the University of Toronto, and uh, just kept going. Great. Toronto. We, we like to think of Toronto here in Vancouver as the other city. That's almost as good. Yeah, almost well, good. we might have a different view of that. <laughs> okay, great. So the book that we're talking about today is subtitled Historical Memory and the Politics of Museums in Post-Socialist China. So this is a book that looks um, very specifically at the role of the party and the state in, in the words of the book, promoting museums and influencing and shaping their constructions of the past. And it focuses on history museums specifically. And we'll talk about all of this in much more detail in the hour to come. But can you start us off along that path by saying a little bit about what brought you to this topic? Now, you talk a little bit about this in the preface, and you mention a 1999 conference on visual art as cultural memory in China. But can you kind of bring us into the genesis of this project for you? Yeah, I should say, first of all, that my f my field of expertise is literature. Mm -hmm. And so this project of museums is really something uh, very different for me. And it all started back in the late 90s uh, when my colleague Chen Xiaomei and Judy Andrews invited me to participate in a conference on the Cultural Revolution. And this is way beyond any kind of research that I'd done before. My research had always focused on the literature of the of Republican China. And so I was scrounging around for a topic to present at this conference, and I stumbled on a book of revolutionary history paintings. And I was intrigued by the paintings and their visual style and the kinds of stories that they were uh, telling. And so I presented a paper on, at this conference on the rhetoric, the visual rhetoric of these uh, history paintings, most of which are, are oil paintings. And that got me thinking about the context in which these paintings are displayed, and that is the Museum of Chinese History in, in Beijing. And so from from this sort of analysis, visual analysis of the 
the rhetoric of these paintings, I kind of slipped into the field of museum studies. I barely knew at the time that there was such a thing as museum studies. Turns out that quite a lot has been published on the topic. Uh, And so I had to kind of dive into not just the field of museum studies, but a whole range of other kinds of disciplines, uh, which are because museums are basically um, multimedia entities. They make they make use of, of paintings, of photographs, of maps, and all other manner of, uh, of materials are used to put an, ex- an exhibit together. So it really involves the study of, uh, of multiple disciplines like uh, tourism and cartography and geography and urban studies and architecture and all these sorts of things that I had no clue about before I began the project. So it was uh, quite an eye-opening experience for me. And the kind of research that's involved in studying museums is a kind of research that I'd never done before. My research up to that point had been literary in orientation. I go to the library, I check out books, I read stuff closely, uh, do a little bit of literary history and that sort of thing. And then suddenly I'm having to go to China all the time to actually visit museums, study the exhibits on display, interview museum officials. And so the the nature of my research changed dramatically as I entered into this this project. Now, I mentioned um, just a few minutes ago that the focus of the book is on the role of the party and the state in all of this. So you talk um, very specifically early in the book about the importance of this focus being on the state. Can you talk a little bit about that for listeners? Why is this particular kind of focus so important for you in motivating the project and your approach to it? Well, my sense was that uh, the way... Research on China has gone in recent years was been has been to focus on alternative narratives, uh, unofficial history, and so on. And that, as a result, the state was sort of being left out of the equation. There are a few people who are certainly working on on state discourse and the state's role in shaping historical narratives. But I felt that it it hadn't gotten the attention that it deserved. Uh, so I felt that a book on uh, this topic is uh, would, would be an important contribution uh, and filling a gap that, that hadn't that, that needed filling. So the book um, has two principal foci, and these are laid out in the introduction, and I'll just lay this out for listeners, and then we'll move into the chapters. And this is in the words of the book. These two foci are, on the one hand, to analyze the exhibition of the past in a variety of Chinese state museums and the role of these museums in nation building, in the construction of national identities, and in political legitimization. Also, to investigate how these representations of the past are changing in the new political and economic climates of post-socialist neoliberal China. And after an introduction that lays out this foundation and offers a brief sketch of the history of the development of museums in China, you take us into a first chapter that looks specifically at museums of pre-modern history and their role in constructing kinds of origin stories for the nation state in modernity. 
Now, this is where um, I'd like to start diving in. You talk here in this first chapter about the fact that in some museums in China, the very early past, the ancient past, and this is often engaged with um, the importance of archaeology and archaeological sites, serves national narratives. But those narratives are changing as more and more interest in the local and local identity and local cultural museums emerges. Now, you take us into a particular example um, that helps us understand this. And this is the Museum of Chinese History, which becomes the National Museum of China. So because so much of the richness of the book um, is about how these, these arguments really come alive and take on an almost sort of haptic um, significance as you guide us through the particular sites um, that sort of as exemplars of each one of these chapters, I think it's appropriate to start our journey with an exemplar also. So can you um, tell us a little bit about this National Museum of China? What's important for us to understand about this particular site in order to understand the larger argument that you're making as part of the book? Well, this, this museum is a museum that actually dates back to the Republican era. <laughs> and its uh, prototype, if you like, was founded back in 1912, and then it has evolved with multiple names through the Republican period, uh, and then was kind of reestablished after the revolution, uh, after 1949, and became sort of the most official uh, place in China for the the telling of the story of of the, of the past. So it was kind of reestablished in the 1950s, along with its sister museum, that is the Museum of the Chinese Revolution. So the Museum of Chinese History and the Museum of the Chinese Revolution were both on the in the same building, although institutionally separate, on the east side of Tiananmen Square. So they're both placed in this very official uh, political symbolic context. context. Uh, so the Museum of Chinese History tells the story of China from its very earliest times all the way up to the, to the Opium Wars. And then the other museum, the Museum of the Chinese Revolution, takes over the story from the Opium Wars and treats the history of modern China up to 1949. So those two museums really kind of go hand in hand, even though they're quite, uh, they were separate as, uh, as uh, institutions. Mm-hmm. So the Museum of Chinese History... Um, in the, I, I go in detail about sort of the development of the exhibits over time uh, through the Mao era into the post-Mao era. Uh, but so one of the striking changes that happens is the gradual removal of Marxist forms of periodizing the past uh, and uh, a kind of return to the dynastic way of uh, dividing up pre-modern Chinese uh, history uh, and looking at uh, the development. And, and so there's, well, what we see is the in the post-Mao era, a kind of renewed attention to the glories of the imperial past. In the Mao era, the museum presents a kind of bifurcated view of the imperial past. On the one hand, the pre-modern history is, is feudal history. It's, uh, it's bad. Uh, but it also 
gave rise to revolutionary impulses. So Mao and and the Maoist era had had this kind of um, binary view of the past. What happens gradually over time in the 80s and 90s as the exhibits change in the post-Mao era is a kind of uh, glorification of imperial history. And the basic argument that I make is that this glorification of imperial history relates politically to China's rise uh, and, and its, uh, its rise in, in the global uh, sphere, its increased importance in the world, its economic development, and so on. So this kind of resurrection of the glories of the imperial past becomes a kind of foundation, if you like, for China's new self-image in the world uh, in in recent times. Now, you also talk in this chapter um, really interestingly about the kind of new trend to exhibit China as a multi-ethnic nation, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as well as we get into one of the later chapters. And you also talk about the rise of local culture museums in the last two decades. So I just want to mm-hmm. mark that for listeners who are particularly interested in the ways that these phenomena intersect with what we might think of as a local history and local historiography. Those are some really interesting stuff happening in this first chapter. Right. I do. I, I'd like, just like to say that the, these local museums reflect a kind of uh, interest in, in local culture, but they are not necessarily at odds with new kinds of national narratives. Right? That that uh, these things are not. Uh, in fact, the local the interest in the local gets kind of um, attached to a new story of the multi ethnic nation state, and so that it actually serves that that political purpose as well. Now, you mentioned um, just a little while ago the Museum of the Chinese Revolution as kind of a sister space. Um, And this takes us really nicely and and I think briefly into Chapter 2. Chapter 2 takes us into modes of what the book calls exhibiting revolution and revolutionary history in the post-Mao reform era. And after talking about links between the KMT and the CCP revolutionary narratives, both kind of commonalities and also differences among them. And you talk about the sort of um, the ways in which nationalist era and PRC era representations um, kind of have very different approaches to emphasizing the relative importance of revolution and the discourse of revolution. You take us um, kind of closely into the Museum of the Chinese Revolution, and you call this the most official exhibitionary space for interpreting and propagandizing the meaning of communist revolution in the PRC. Now, one thing that I'd like to ask you to speak to, because it comes up here in this conversation and also in the previous chapter, and I think elsewhere as well, is the importance of a particular exhibit um, for really exemplifying some of the phenomena and some of the transformations that you talk about. And this is an exhibit called Road to Revival. Okay, so this is something that we see in, I think, the intro and in the first two chapters of the book. And it seems like an important um, exhibit uh, in manifesting some of what you take to be important in this part of the story. So can you tell us about that exhibit for us? Like, what for you do we need to understand about that to understand how it's important for how you're thinking about this? Okay, but before I get into the specifics of that that exhibit, I, I should mention that these two museums, the Museum of Chinese History and the Museum of the Chinese Revolution, uh, were in 2004, I believe, 
uh, brought together into a single institution for the first time in in the museum's history, uh, and this and this is when the name National Museum of China was uh, was adopted. So the Road to Revival is the first exhibit to appear, the first modern China exhibit to appear in this newly named museum. And it, and then it's not just that the name the museum was renamed; it was also renovated into a, a gloriously a monumental uh, space. Uh, so new exhibit in a new museum, basically. Uh, so the Road to Revival is the. A modern exhibit that appears in this new uh, museum, and what's most significant about this exhibit is, for the first time in the history of the museum, dating back to the 1950s, it uh, exhibits the history of contemporary China, Dang Dai. So this is the period from after 1949 up to the present. From the origins of the museum back in the 1950s, there had been a plan always to put on an exhibit of contemporary history. But because that contemporary history was so uh, uh, tumultuous and under constant change and politically sensitive, a museum of contemporary history was never mounted until this road to revival in 2011. Uh, so this is so what uh, all previous exhibits had exhibited only the history of modern China from the Opium War up to 1949. So the narrative always ended with the establishment of the People's Republic in 1949. So now uh, the story uh, is allowed to continue on into the, the period of the 1950s, 1960s, the Mao era, and into the revival of the 1980s, 90s, and so on. Uh, so this is this is quite uh, significant. Now I interviewed uh, before this exhibit was put together. I interviewed some curators at the museum, and they uh, told me that I asked them about whether or not the Cultural Revolution would get uh, treatment in this exhibit, and they assured me that it would. Uh, it turns out in the final product that this is, was not the case. Uh, the, the Cultural Revolution actually uh, was treated, I think, in a single placard in this uh, huge, huge exhibit. Right? So still that, that history of contemporary China, things like the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, the anti-rightist campaign, these things are all pretty sensitive and not really treated in a forthright manner in the Road to Revival exhibit. So what we are presented with is a kind of glorious story, not only of the, re the successful revolution under the leadership of the Communist Party, but also the successful modernization and revival under the leadership of the Communist Party. And there isn't really a kind of forthright treatment of some of the traumatic moments in the history of contemporary China. And it's not just the history of the Mao era that is not treated in a forthright manner, but in uh, the, the history of, uh, of the modernization in the reform era af after the end of the Cultural Revolution. Right? That's a, an, another sort of glorious story of the, uh, of the revival of China and the modernization of China and so on. Now, as we move 
from this into the next chapter, you talk about some of the ways that new exhibitionary spaces are actually presenting views of modern history that are importantly different from what's happening in the National Museum of China and in the cases in which we've been talking about for the first part of our conversation. You talk here about the tension or an important tension between popularizing revolutionary history for consumption in the new cultural marketplace and also a fear of turning history into a mere commodity. So there's this interesting um, engagement with market forces and the sort of cultural marketplace that's happening in this chapter in chapter three. You take us into three examples, Red Crag Revolutionary Memorial Hall, the Nanjing Presidential Palace, which interestingly kind of engages issues or fails to engage issues of class, and also the Shanghai Municipal History Museum, which incidentally does kind of interesting things with uh, the use of multimedia. So for you, what are some of the most important ways that some of these spaces are importantly differing from what we've been talking about. And perhaps if there's an example here that you are most interested in, we might talk about that as an exemplar. Well, the, the Shanghai Municipal History Museum is probably the most striking <laughs> example. Uh, this is a museum that, if you're familiar with Shanghai and uh, Pudong, the, uh, across the river from the Bund, uh, there's this giant pearl tower that's been constructed, one of the ugliest structures ever built in, uh, in the world. But still, the museum is housed at the base of this, this structure. And so there's an interesting kind of relationship between the, the, the tower itself, which is sort of a symbol of modern, modern Shanghai, and the museum, which is at the base of this tower, uh, which displays the history of, of Shanghai. Um, and the history of Shanghai, is, the emphasis, not surprisingly, is on the modern era and the development of Shanghai as a major metropolis uh, from the after the Taiping Rebellion on into the present. But what's striking about this exhibit is that it's really in a kind of nostalgic mode. Oh, by, by the way, I should say that it doesn't. It's it, the story of Shanghai in this exhibit stops basically at 1949. So the emphasis is on late Qing and Republican China. And the the mode of narration here is uh, absolutely a nostalgic mode. Uh, there is almost no real narrative per se. It's not telling a story in the way that most museums, um, official museums in China do. It's centered around different kinds of urban spaces. Uh, and there is no narrative whatsoever that resembles the kind of revolutionary narratives that we get in the official museum, Museum of the Chinese Revolution or the uh, Road to Revival exhibit that I just mentioned. And so it's this kind of nostalgic attachment to... Shanghai of the past of the late Qing and the Republican era. And my, what I argue in there in the book is that this kind of nostalgia for Shanghai of that era is, is sort of laying a foundation for the image that Shanghai has of itself in, in the present. Uh, so the, the generally speaking positive representation of economic life and social life 
in Shanghai that we see in the exhibit uh, in the Republican era in particular uh, is uh, lays a kind of foundation for the Shanghai of the present, a Shanghai that is global uh, and uh, looks out to, to the world and so on. So this this nostalgic book is, is 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 radically different from the kinds of exhibits that you see in, in Beijing. Uh, now that's not surprising, perhaps, because the museum focuses not a national museum; it's a local museum. It focuses on Shanghai history and not on the history of the whole nation. So it may not be surprising that a quote unquote local museum might have uh, an alternative form of narration in the way that it, it does. But we really see here one of the buzzwords of China in the 1990s was this idea of bidding farewell to the to the revolution. And this museum really has bid farewell to the to the revolution. Um, so it's an alternative form of narrative, but that doesn't mean that it's it, it doesn't whitewash history in the way that the more official forms of narrative do. Uh, there's little attention to the trauma of the past um, in the same ways that there isn't attention to those things in the official narratives. Right? So it's, it's alternative, yes, but uh, not necessarily a, a better narrative or a narrative that is closer to historical reality. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So as we move from this um, into the further kind of depths of the book, there's a chapter that we won't have time to speak to um, in any kind of depth, but I just want to mark for listeners that they know it's there. Chapter four looks at the ways that the post-socialist state is propagating the memory of martyrs, of revolutionary martyrs, specifically in museums and memorial sites. And it looks at, um, in detail, post-Mao Martyrs Parks. It looks at the Longhua Martyrs Park and also the Yuhua Tai Martyrs Memorial Park. So listeners with a particular interest in the memorialization and the spaces of memorializing martyrs um, will find a lot of really interesting stuff happening in Chapter 4. But then we move to two chapters that bring us into a different kind of museum than the one that we've been talking about, and this is the War Museum. So chapter five and six look at two different kinds of war museum in modern China. Um, One is a museum that focuses on the human suffering of war, and we'll get to that in a moment. That's chapter six. But first, chapter five looks at museums that glorify war, that glorify the military, and that serve a kind of nationalist ideology. And you talk about this in detail. Now, in your close look at military museums here, there's an example that stands out, again, as an exemplar. And I'd like to just ask you to, um, like we've been doing, just talk briefly about how this exemplifies for you what's most important about what's happening with war museums, military museums specifically here. And this is the military museum in Beijing. So can you speak briefly to that? How for you, does this military museum in Beijing um, kind of exemplify some of what you take to be most important about military museums right now in China? Right. So I I begin this chapter by talking about different kinds of war museums 
globally. There are those that glorify war and those are more in a reflective or contemplative mode that kind of question the morality behind war and draw attention to to suffering. Uh, This this museum, uh, the museum, military museum in Beijing, uh, obviously is in the sort of glorification of war mode. It's, I would say, probably the most conservative and least changing of all of the official museums in in Beijing. And that's perhaps not surprising because it's controlled directly by by the army. Uh, So it's presenting a very uh, conservative image of the role of the army uh, in relationship to the revolution. Now, when when the museum was first built in the 1950s during the Great Leap Forward period, or just just before that, I guess, uh, it focused solely on the military exploits of the revolutionary movement. So it was a modern history uh, museum in that sense. Only in the post-Mao era was uh, an exhibit about military history in imperial times added to the museum. And so again, we have this kind of coupling of the, the the imperial past with the modern military history of the, the revolution uh, that makes it uh, quite different from what it ideologically from what it was uh, back in the Mao era. Uh, so the imperial past again becomes kind of a foundation uh, ideological political foundation for uh, imperial aspirations in in the present but what's uh, striking in the the, the the focus in the imperial history section of the museum is basically on the issue of political unity so war is a necessary um, thing that is required in order to bring about national unity right so uh, this plays into the whole PRC's uh, emphasis on on political unity. Uh, so war and, mi- and the military in the imperial past uh, is constantly struggling to create and succeeding sometimes, not others, in creating this kind of uh, political uh, unified entity. And that relates to images of political unity in, in, in the present. The section on the uh, military history of modern China obviously emphasizes the role of the PLA and uh, and the revolution and really projects a sense of the power of the state uh, by glorifying the, the military. There is no, never any kind of questioning of the morality of war. Um, it it uh, does not emphasize the the suffering of of soldiers in various military uh, conflicts and and so on. So it presents a kind of simplified view, I think, of uh, of warfare generally. But not not surprising. We we there are similar sorts of, of war museums in the U.S. and other parts of the world that do a similar kind of thing, glorifying the nation, glorifying the the state power. So that. Emphasis on suffering, or at least on the human um, consequences, right? The human suffering that comes with war. Um, that's very much the focus of what's going on in the next chapter, right? And this is the chapter that really kind of 
serves as a counterpoint to chapter five, and it looks um, not at military museums, but rather at these uh, museums about war that focus on this aspect of human suffering. So this sixth chapter looks at three important museums um, and or memorial sites that are devoted to Japanese imperialism and its related consequences and the atrocities that came from it specifically. And I want to ask you to talk about just a couple of these, um, and I'll just name them for listeners. This is the Memorial of the People's War of Resistance Against Japan, the Memorial to the Victims of the Nanjing Massacre by Japanese Army Invaders, and Crimes Evidence Exhibition Hall of Japanese Imperial Army Unit 731. I've been to the the last of these, and I was really fascinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's a very dirt. One of the really interesting things that comes out of this chapter is that you're showing, at least for me, you're showing that there are very different ways of um, dealing with uh, the consequences and the human consequences of Japanese imperialism and human suffering in these three different sites. And let's at least contrast a couple of them. So the Memorial of the People's War Resistance Against Japan, what kind of space is that? And and what's the emphasis in that space in terms of the larger um, phenomenon of this uh, human suffering and war of this chapter? Right. So that is the most national, one could say, of all the of, of the three museums that depict the history of uh, of the war of resistance against Japan. Uh, this is uh, set just outside of, of uh, Beijing uh, at the Marco Polo Bridge, which was the place where the uh, where the war began in 1937. So it's it's quite an official space and a national space for remembering the war. Um, but it also uh, draws attention to a lot of the atrocities committed by the Japanese during the war, although that is not the focus of the narrative. The focus of the narrative is on the fighting of the war, the role of the PA, PLA uh, and in, in fighting against the Japanese uh, and, and the, the successful uh, winning of the war, the victory. Uh, so that's that's the main story that's told, but in sort of within the context of of that narrative, there are places, exhibits, displays within the, the museum that pay attention to horror and suffering. Um, now, when you turn to the Nanjing Massacre Memorial Hall, uh, there obviously the horror and the suffering and the atrocity takes front place and is becomes the the story itself. <laughs> Now contrast this with what's happening in the Unit 731 site. And this is really interesting in part because you talk about the power of the particular site itself, right? So that the site, the ruins um, that this site is uh, embodying here, um, this is part of the power of what's happening in this exhibitionary space. So can you take us through your own um, feelings and experience of that a little bit? Yeah, there's a little bit of that site, uh, the power of the authentic site in the Nanjing Massacre Memorial Hall, because one of the uh, one of the displays there is a, is an actual uh, unearthed grave of of bones of people who had been massacred during during the. Uh, the, uh, the uh, Nanjing Massacre. Uh, but it, this idea of kind of the authenticity and the power of the of the site takes on a greater importance, I think, in the Unit 731 uh, Museum. And I, I get the sense, and I think this may have been done self-consciously, that 
the Holocaust museums and uh, concentration camp museums in Europe may be sort of at play in how this museum took shape and the sort of form that it it has and the emphasis it places on the site itself. Uh, So it's it's a, a powerful museum that when I went there, the museum has all sorts of horrible things that we don't need to go into detail to uh, um, to show what happened at this particular military unit during the war, while all forms of torture uh, were are put on display here. But at the very end, there's a, a documentary film that is being screened. And the day I, that I went, there were not very many people there, but a few. And one of the spectators was so upset by what she saw on the screen, she ran out and threw up in a bucket outside the, uh, the display. So it, uh, it's, a, it's a powerful place with a difficult uh, difficult viewing experience. Yeah. And I, I'm not quite sure what the status of it is now. I haven't followed up on this, but there were plans at the time to really develop the site more fully. Mm-hmm. When I was there, it was just one... When were you there? Several years ago. Several, yeah. Several well, years ago, yeah. Yeah, when I was there, there was just one one building that was used for the display of exhibits but there were plans to kind of develop the entire site as a as a ruins uh, and make it more open to the the public and i'm not sure if they've happened or not but yeah so as thank you so as we move from this i just i want to say one thing that is, is that this memorializing of uh, massacres and atrocities, one might have expected the communists in the Mao era to make use of this for propaganda purposes, but it was almost totally absent from from the communist narrative uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It was only after the Cultural Revolution in the post-Mao era that we see the state get interested in memorializing atrocities committed by the Japanese during the war. And so what I try to argue there is that it's it's precisely at the moment when socialism as an ideology is declining that the state uses this attention to Japanese atrocities to fuel nationalism as a new kind of ideology to replace, uh, to replace socialism. So there's a chapter um, on that chapter seven that we're not going to speak about substantively, but again, I want to just mention for you don't want to talk about Leifang. We can ah, oh, we can talk about Leifang. <laughs> no, no, we it's talk, fine. Yeah, so but this is why, right? I want to mention it. There's so much, and for listeners, it's not that I don't want to talk about Leifang, but there's so much happening in the last chapters of the book that I want to make sure we have time for that. But sure. yes, Leifang. So chapter seven looks at two kinds of memorial halls devoted to heroes and models, and I'll just mark this for listeners because there's so much going on here and if we had another hour we would be talking at length about this chapter but just for now just to mark it um, there are halls that you talk about here devoted to upstanding average people as the chapter calls it and this is uh, Leifeng Memorial Hall as the um, major example here that you take us through and also you show us halls devoted to leaders and the examples here are Zhou Enlai and Deng Xiaoping 
And the chapter argues, in the words of the chapter, that these halls devoted to leaders mark a concerted effort, again, this is in the words of the book, to present to the public the benign human and moral face of state power. So there's some really interesting things happening in this chapter. Um, and if we had more time, we would be talking about them at length. But we need to get to Madman or Madman Memorial Hall. That's why I'm <laughs> skimming over this. And we're going to get there in Chapter 8 by looking at modern literature museums. Now, um, in, you take us into a, at least a couple of different kinds of modern literature museums here in this chapter. And I know um, your background is in literature, right? This is sort of what you are trained in and work in. And so I wanted to make sure we had time to talk about this particular kind of museum. Now, you talk in this chapter about Lushun Memorial Halls. And you bring us into Shaoxing. Now, there's a Shaoxing Lushun Memorial Hall. Um, and this is a really interesting case because the exhibits here, as you show, are localized. They're tied to local culture. But then from there, you take us into a site also in Shaoxing called Lu Village. This is fascinating to me. And I was particularly struck by, again, um, the site that you describe here called Madman Memorial Hall and the kind of experience of this site as a sort of an exhibitionary space. So this is what I'm going to ask you to take us into. So, Kirk, can you bring us into Madman Memorial Hall? Like what's for you interesting and important about this? And perhaps we can use this again as an exemplar um, to talk about what you feel is most important for us to get. Uh, from this chapter right so there uh, as you say there's in the in Shaoxing proper there is this Lushan Memorial Hall which is a kind of official conventional museum dedicated to Lushan uh, outside is this uh, what I call it's basically a theme park dedicated to Lushan so clearly the town of Shaoxing and the suburbs of Shaoxing are trying to uh, to uh, use uh, Lushan for their own economic commercial purposes but the so the the Man Memorial Hall is a small part of this Lu Village theme park dedicated to Lushan. So what the theme park does is kind of recreate Lu Town, which is a fictional town that Lushan uh, wrote about in his short fiction. So you can, there are streets and canals and characters from Lucian's fiction, walk around in costume in the village, and you can talk to them and take pictures with them. And uh, so that, that's very much in a kind of theme park mode. But at the back of the of the village is this Madman Memorial Hall, which tries to recreate in a carnivalesque sort of way the the feeling that the madman, the central character in one of Lucian's stories, uh, may have uh, felt. Uh, the madman, as you recall, if you've read the story, it, it believes that he ha- he that the society around him is cannibalistic, and that and he's confused and dazed by the whole the whole cannibalistic world around him. So the the, the in using these kind of carn- carnivalist modes of, of exhibition, the point is to try to recreate for the spectator the experience and. Of, of living as a madman in a horrible in a world filled with oppression and violence and horror. 
And so you kind of you can enter in and actually talk to the madman who is this, this, this the mechanical creature who has these programmed things, I guess, that are supposed to it wasn't working when I was there. Uh, things that he said didn't make any sense to me, but maybe that's maybe that's, that's an expression of his madness. <laughs> But yeah, very much a, a kind of popular commercial uh, mode of, of of narration. So in Shaoxing proper, you have the formal conventional museum, and then outside you have this theme park uh, version of Lucian and Lucian's fiction. Uh, neither one of these versions, I don't think Lucian would have been terribly pleased with. <laughs> but yeah, the, the version in town in Shaoxing. They've they've uh, kind of revitalized the whole district around the Memorial Hall into what they call the Lucian Old Home District, which is centered not only on Lucian but also on uh, the the local culture of of Shaoxing, which is this uh, canal town in in the middle part of, of China. So it's a kind of nostalgic. Uh, an effort to sort of restore uh, Shaoxing of Republican time of the time that Lucian lived here, lived there. And I think he would not have liked this nostalgic mode because in his fiction, he wrote very negatively about his hometown, uh, which was sort of the embodiment of, uh, of, uh, of a dead Confucian moral value system and so on. So. Great. Well, thank you. And there's also some really interesting stuff here in this chapter. Um, for listeners to dive into on the Museum of Modern Chinese Literature. So the Lu Xun um, example is not the only example. It's one of um, you know, uh, other really interesting examples in this chapter. Now, this brings us to Chapter 9. Chapter 9 looks at representations of um, what are kind of called, and this is in quotes, right, ethnic minorities in PRC museums and theme parks. And there's, again, all kinds of fascinating stuff that's happening in this chapter. But I want to ask you, just in the interest of time, specifically about one of the sections here. Um, it's particularly, I think, um, interesting uh, right now. And this is the section that talks about the connection between ethnic minority um, representations in museums and Echo museums in China. Can you talk about what's going on there? Ethnic minority um, exhibitionary spaces or exhibitionary spaces about ethnic minorities minorities in China and the echo museum phenomenon. Right. So the Eco Museum, this is a, a movement in museums that started in France in the 1960s, uh, an attempt to sort of a reaction against state museums and the elite control of museum representations and an effort to kind of preserve local culture through getting local people to be involved and actively participating in the preservation of their of their own culture, so the museum, this eco museum movement, uh, came to China relatively late, and not until the 1990s. And somewhat ironically, it was the eco museum movement in China was was initiated by foreigners. Uh, it's supposed to be something that's locally initiated, but in fact, for, foreigners, I think, from Norway and various other pa- 
uh, places came to parts of southern China and encouraged local Chinese to sort of uh, uh, preserve uh, village life uh, along the pattern of an eco-museum. So eco-museum just means a kind of living museum. It's supposed to be different from a formal museum in the fact that people still live there, work there, and, uh, and enjoy their lives within and and but at the same time are sort of objects of, uh, of uh, uh, exhibition because they're put on display for tourists and people who come to the, these villages to, uh, to look around. So from here, and, and so there's lots of other discussion about this in this chapter. Um, and again, if we had another hour, I would be asking you lots of detailed things about what's going on, specifically um, in terms of the engagement and interplay between um, ethnic minority experiences and exhibition and echo museums here. But we have to get to red tourism. And this brings us to chapter 10. Chapter 10 looks at a phenomenon called red tourism in modern China. Now, this is really, really interesting. You bring us into three key sites, um, Jinggangshan, which is really interestingly um, kind of woven around a story of songs and singing and the poetry of Mao and the way that it evokes um, and concretizes revolutionary memory. You bring us into the Hunan Golden Triangle, the memorial halls of Mao Zedong, Liu Xiaoqi, and Peng Dehuai. And you also bring us into the Xibaipua site. And this is interesting um, in part because this latter site becomes important as a result of the political patronage of some modern rulers, right, including Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. So these are three different kinds of uh, really interesting sites for red tourism. Now, you talk um, in this chapter about some of your own experiences, right, sort of with red tourism. And then, uh, this is a really interesting part of the narrative, I think. So this is kind of where I'd like to enter into this chapter for listeners. First of all, for listeners who do not understand this concept, briefly, what is red tourism um, and what is uh, what were some of your experiences engaging in this practice as a uh, part of their research for this chapter? Right. So the, the PRC state promoted, began to promote red tourism back in the early 2000s. And it was part of a larger project on what is referred to as patriotic education, uh, that is to encourage people to learn more about China's history um, and for, for patriotic purposes. Uh, but it was also an effort to kind of bring development and modernization to some of the more remote areas of China where much of China's revolutionary history took place. So red tourism is a state-promoted program to encourage tourists from Chinese cities to go to these remote areas and to experience the revolution at the sites that they, uh, where they actually happened. Uh, so it's a kind of response to or a recognition that museums themselves, formal conventional museums, which are kind of artificial spaces, right, uh, that they are somehow inadequate as propaganda tools to teach about uh, revolutionary history. Better is to actually go to these places and to experience that history in person. So this is kind of authenticity and power of being at the site where it took place that is different from the kind of experience that you have when you go into the artificial context of a, of a conventional museum. 
so that's that's uh, those are the motivations for the state behind this this tourism program. Uh, one of the things that happens in red tourism is that red tourism tourism is often combined with green tourism. That is the visiting of of uh, beautiful places with lots of mountains and greeneries. Uh, so there's uh, so when you go on to a red tourism tour, you often are also visiting beautiful places at the same time with lovely landscapes. So I most of my work in the red tourism chapter I did as a solitary tourist, but I did participate in a few uh, um, state-sponsored uh, uh, red tourism programs. Uh, and so I went on buses with Chinese tourists to visit uh, places in Hunan uh, and, and, uh, and also in Jingangshan. Uh, and this this is interesting because you can sort of get. Uh, I was certainly the only tourist uh, from the West on these uh, on these tours. The, the the vast majority of, of tourists who go on red tour uh, red tourism tours are are Chinese domestic tourists. Um, and so, as a foreigner, sort of uh, anthropologist, I guess, looking at Chinese tourists uh, as they visit these sites was really kind of an eye-opening experience. And I saw a range of kinds of uh, uh, reactions uh, from a young couple who seemed to care less about what the guides were saying to an older couple who were fascinated and wanted to learn more. Right? But they almost all tourists who participate in these uh, in these uh, tours are are domestic tourists uh, and they're participating as as a group uh, and that's a different kind of experience than experience a, a place as a solitary tourist uh, because you're led from place to place by a tour guide you, the tour guide has a specific uh, uh, speech that he or she gives at each site and so on so you're being fed a certain kind of interpretation interpretation of that of that place uh, whereas when you're on your own uh, you can stop and linger and think and look at the place in ways that might be different from that sort of official narrative. And the chapter pays really interesting attention to red tourism as a kind of form of pilgrimage. Um, and so I just mm -hmm. wanted to mark that for listeners who are particularly interested in those resonances. And there are ways in which um, uh, thinking about red tourism as a form of pilgrimage uh, really interestingly complicates what we think of pilgrimage as. Um, and so there's uh, some particularly, for me, interesting part of that chapter. Now, we're almost coming to our conclusion, if you can believe that. And I just want to briefly, um, kind of just very, very briefly talk about this last body chapter, because I think it's important, and it takes us into the future. This is a chapter, chapter 11, called Museums of the Future, and it looks at municipal urban planning exhibition halls in modern China. Now, you, you say here um, that these are important in part uh, because they don't exist, at least not at the same scale elsewhere in the world. And they're also just kind of inherently intrinsically interesting. You take us into three examples, and we won't have time to talk about these in detail, but I'll just name them the modern city of Shanghai. And there's this really interesting treatment um, in that part of the chapter 
picture of models and modeling, and you um, show us this very striking model of the Shanghai cityscape um, here in this museum. There's also an ancient literati city of Suzhou, which features, among other things, a time-space tunnel, which is pretty cool, I think, uh, on the second floor of the main exhibition hall. And then you mm. also at Chongqing, which you call an inland metropolis. Now, what I want to just ask you very briefly to talk about, just as a way to um, open up this chapter before we conclude, is that you're arguing here that the representation of the future in these three cases is, um, in the words of the book, driven by the ideology of the market reform era. This seems like a useful place to kind of bring this to a conclusion. So for you, what's important for us to understand about the way that the market reform era kind of shapes a vision of the future in these cases? And perhaps um, you might talk briefly about um, what you think is the most engaging case based on your experience of this. Well, these as a whole, first let me say that these, I don't, I don't know if you know of these kinds of uh, exhibition halls in other national contexts, but they are remarkable in China. Every major city has them and even mid-level cities have them. So it's really a very Chinese uh, uh, thing going on here. Uh, and I, th- I think it has a lot to do with sort of this, this sense of this obsession with modernization in China and moving into the future. One of the buzzwords in intellectual discourse in the 90s and, and on was this phrase, uh, walking toward the future, uh, and the sense that China, by going into the future, is leaving behind uh, a, a very difficult past, a past that has experienced imperialism uh, and a Maoist past filled with all sorts of, of trauma. So the, these halls kind of capture, I think, this obsession with with moving with modernization, with moving into uh, the, the future. So they present, at least in my argument, a kind of utopian vision uh, of the future that is uh, connected to state economic discourse and uh, neoliberal uh, economy in, in China. And it's a very different vision of China's cities that you I might get if you, I don't know if you are a fan of Jia Zhangke's films, I am, but the, the, the vision of Chinese cities that you get in his films is uh, the polar opposite of the vision of cities that you get in these uh, urban planning halls. Uh, His cities are filled with ruins and and degradation and poverty. Um, You don't see any of that in these, um, in the exhibits, in these uh, exhibition halls. You see a world that has no social problems at all. There are no class divisions. There's no pollution. Um, Every, everything seems quite perfect and utopian. <clears throat> Great. Well, Kirk, I wish we had another hour to talk about all of the things that we didn't get to. The book is extraordinarily rich and it's just full of stories and explorations and arguments for listeners who hopefully will go out and get their hands on a copy of the book and work through it more comprehensively. But in the meantime, as we're now at our conclusion and wrapping up, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to point out for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had an opportunity to become readers? 
Yeah, um, now I think we touched on, and your uh, summaries were filled in gaps very nicely. So uh, I just hope some people will read the book. And uh, uh, I don't know how many have, but uh, <laughs> I guess a few people. So uh, nothing, nothing in particular. Okay. And now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What's uh, currently inspiring you? What are you working on? Well, this book was originally conceived as a book that, a comparative book that would treat Greater China. So uh, it was organized around the idea of post societies and changing representations of history in museums in three different post societies that is, post socialist China, post martial law Taiwan, uh, and post colonial Hong Kong. So this is the book that I wrote originally, and the the people at the, at Hawaii Press uh, said this book is too long, uh, <laughs> and they were right. Uh, and the reviewers also said this the same thing. So I had to kind of rethink the book a little bit. And so what I ended up deciding to do, maybe that's it was the easy way to go, was to just chop off the Taiwan and Hong Kong stuff and make it a book about mainland China with a focus on post-socialist China. Um, so um, good or bad, um, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also means that I can do a spin-off book, which I'm working on right now, which will focus on on Taiwan and the museums in Taiwan and the representation of history in those museums. And the case of Taiwan is really quite fascinating, and it offers an interesting counterpoint to the mainland because you have two different Chinese societies that are politically very different. Right? You have a single-party state on the mainland, and you have a democratic, multi-party state in Taiwan. And uh, sort of looking at how history gets treated in these two different contexts is quite fascinating to me. Of course, in the case of Taiwan, party politics plays an important role in the debates and arguments over the meaning of history and Taiwan's identity, which is really quite quite interesting. But in, in Taiwan, it's all done in, in the open public sphere, uh, in the spirit of debate, which is not what happens in mainland China. Well, best of luck with that project. I'll look forward to trying to convince you to talk to me about that book as well. Okay. Uh, that's done. Um, and thank you for taking time away from that work to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure, and congratulations on the book. Well, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure for me. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us at the podcast, and we'll catch you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.